I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. The Air Force interest in this problem has been due to our feeling of an obligation to identify and analyze to the best of our ability anything in the air that may have the possibility of threat or menace to the United States. In pursuit of this obligation since 1947, we have received and analyzed between one and 2,000 reports that have come to us from all kinds of sources. Of this great mass of reports, we have been able adequately to explain the great bulk of them, explain them to our own satisfaction. We've been able to explain them as uh, hoaxes, as erroneously identified friendly aircraft, as meteorological or electronic phenomena, or as light aberrations. However, there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we now are attempting to resolve. Our basic difficulty in dealing with these is that there is no measurement of them that makes it possible for us to put them in any pattern that would be profitable for a deliberate uh, custom sort of analysis to take the next step. We have, as of date, come to only one firm conclusion with respect to this remaining percentage. And that is that it does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency that we can relate with any, to any conceivable threat to the United States. We can say that the recent sightings are in no way connected with any secret development by any agency of the United States. Major Keyhole, as author of the book, Flying Saucers Are Real, what is your opinion of these new sightings of unidentified objects? With all due respect to the Air Force, I believe that some of them will prove to be of interplanetary origin. During a three-year investigation, I found that many pilots have described objects of substance and high speed. One case, pilots reported their plane was buffeted by an object which passed them at 500 miles an hour. Obviously, this was a solid object, and I believe it was from outer space. everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kadra. Super excited to be bringing you guys another episode. Uh, today, finally, for the very first time, we're going to be getting into UFOs, maybe some aliens. So got the uh, alien earrings on today. And um, a couple quick announcements before we get started, since we are at the top of the show. Uh, first and foremost, if you've been enjoying the podcast and you haven't done so yet, please, 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 I know I'm a broken record, but hit the star rating option on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and leave a five-star review. It makes a huge difference. You have no idea. Uh, and if you've been watching on YouTube, you know, like the videos, uh, hit the subscribe button, of course, really, really helps the show. 
And if you have topic requests or you want to tell me a crazy story that I would love to read on the podcast, remember you can always email me at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can check out the links in each episode description to support the show and find ways to contact me. Uh, A couple of other quick announcements. I have some new listeners in Timmerlest, which I felt like an idiot because I didn't know where Timmerlest was. So that's pretty incredible. Um, it is a country in Asia for anyone else who may not have known. So hello to Timmerlest and my beautiful listeners there. Thank you so much for tuning in. That's so cool. Also, I finally made a design for some t-shirts. And so now I have some merch literally just dropped at the time I'm recording this uh, today. And I ordered myself a t-shirt and a sweatshirt in different colors. Um, We've got tank tops, t-shirts, sweatshirts, a good variety of sizes, I think, and a wide variety of colors. So if that interests you, you can check out my merch link in the episode description. I've also put it in the podcast description, my flow code link. So we've got merch now. We're in business. Uh, A small portion of the proceeds, if you buy merch, will go to me. And that, again, helps support the show, helps me get equipment I need. So thank you so much in advance for that. And if you do buy merch, no worries if you don't, but if you do, tag me in the photos, you know, send them to me. I want to see you guys in some Perplexity merch. I also just got back from a lovely little vacation in LA with my boyfriend TJ, and we got to see his brother there. We got to go to the beach, lots of walking and sightseeing. Uh, The weather was just chef's kiss like so much exponentially better than the texas heat that i always deal with um it was much needed and i got to meet amanda and cassidy from drinking the kool-aid who i've been having the pleasure of speaking with on instagram for the last couple of months and you know i love their podcast so getting to meet them was so cool and I love them now and we're friends and it's just been really, really neat. So it was, it was a great trip. Uh, and thank you guys so much for continuing to tune in and listen to the bonus episodes. It's been really cool to get feedback from you guys. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. We are going to be talking about another government project, which I always find to be really fascinating. We're going to get into Project Blue Book, which is one of the most famous UFO stories. It was basically the government started this program in the 50s to investigate UFOs, and it was covered up from the U.S. and from the world like the public for a very long time. But similar to when I covered Project MK Ultra, thanks to the beautiful Freedom of Information Act, uh, the documents that documented all of these findings and investigations uh, came to light. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Sensitive listening is, as always, advised for listeners below the age of 13, and all of the sources for today's episode will be available in the show notes. 
So if you follow American history, specifically government projects, or if you listened to my MKUltra episode, you're aware of the various top secret government projects that were done specifically during the 1940s through the 1960s. Project Blue Book was another one of those projects. And there is so much that we could talk about here that we simply will not have time to get into, but I'm going to try and give you the important points as best as I can. Basically, Project Blue Book went on from 1952 to 1969, and like many government projects, this was the code name for this at the time because it was top secret work. The project got its name in reference to the blue booklets used during testing at various universities. The name Project Blue Book was inspired by the close attention high-ranking officers gave the project. They would basically treat it like a college final exam. And who took on this project more specifically, you might ask? The United States Air Force. They headquartered this project at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, which people who follow UFOs and alien encounters, you've probably heard of this place. A lot of people think that Area 51 was basically a distraction for people to concern themselves with when really everything was happening at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So the purpose of this project, allegedly, based on like you know, government records, is that they wanted to study unidentified flying objects, which are now often labeled as UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. And this project came after similar studies had already tried, and basically the government wasn't happy with how these projects were going. So that was Project Sign in 1947 and Project Grudge in 1948. So four years later, Project Blue Book was born. The main goal was to determine if UFOs were a potential threat for a nation's security, and they also just wanted to gain a better scientific understanding of these little green guys. This was a huge project. Thousands of UFO reports were documented during this time. Specifically, there were over 12,000 reports, 12,618. So an insane amount. And while most of these reports were later chalked up to being some type of aircraft or natural phenomena, like something with the weather, there were 701 reports that were analyzed extensively by professionals and they could not find an explanation for what could be causing this. And because we have access to these reports, thanks to, once again, the Freedom of Information Act, the same law that was responsible for Project MKUltra coming to light, we know quite a bit. During this project, the Aerial Phenomenon Branch was formed, and a man named Captain Edward J. Ruppelt was the first director of this project. Ruppelt had a lot of flying experience, he was a decorated World War II vet, and he also had a degree in aeronautics. So, perfect man for the job, right? He was the person to officially come up with the term unidentified flying object or UFO. And this came about mostly for neutrality and to just clarify things with the sightings because prior reports, especially with the military, were just, they were using vastly different terms like flying saucer, beam of light, etc. So this just kind of helped clear things up as to what they were seeing. 
And Rubelt also wrote a book later on called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, which would describe all the studies the Air Force did on UFOs from 1947 to 1955. While Rootbelt was in charge, some of the more infamous UFO cases were investigated, such as the Lubbock Lights and the infamous Washington, D.C. sighting in 1952. So we'll get into both of those in just a little bit. There was a man named J. Allen Hynek that helped consult on Blue Book as well. He was an astronomer and also worked on Project Sign and Project Grudge. Heineck was actually a big skeptic, too, when all of this started, so I love stories like that because I tend to think those are the most compelling. As the studies continued, Heineck would later encounter some reports that he could not explain, and because of that, he became more open-minded. So let's talk about the Lubbock Lights. This, of course, happened in Lubbock, Texas, on August 25th, 1951, around 9 p.m., A.G. Oberg, a chemical engineer, W.L. Ducker, a department head and petroleum engineer, and W.I. Robinson, a geologist, were colleagues at Texas Tech University. I'm not sure if they're shortening their names for privacy or if they just all have two initials as their first name. But on August 25th, the three professors got together and they were hanging out in the backyard of one of their homes when suddenly they saw between 20 and 30 lights appear in the sky and fly overhead. The professors would later describe these lights as being bright as stars, but even larger. The lights disappeared, but not long after, a similar group of lights flew over their heads once again. The professors would find this event so difficult to explain they quickly reported it to the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. And to make this case even stranger, that same night, there were also three women in Lubbock at another location, and they also would report seeing peculiar flashing lights, as well as another Texas Tech professor named Carl Hemminger. So not too much longer later on, just on September 5th, the same three men, along with a math professor named E. Richard Heinemann and another professor named Grayson Mead, were in Robinson's front yard when strange lights suddenly appeared once again and flew overhead. Mead described the lights as follows, quote, appeared to be about the size of a dinner plate and they were greenish-blue, slightly fluorescent in color. They were smaller than the full moon at the horizon. There were about a dozen to 15 of these lights. They were absolutely circular. It gave all of us an extremely eerie feeling." They also described these lights to be flying in a U-shaped formation. And because they're professors, they're of course theorizing as to what this could possibly be, Uh, They knew that it could not have been birds because they flew at an incredible speed. And the professors were actually able to calculate the light's speed. So these guys are like insanely smart. There's no way I would be able to do this. So they calculated the lights were traveling at over 600 miles per hour. And just for reference, 
today's day and age, jets fly from 550 to 580 miles per hour, with landing and takeoff speeds varying, but most commercial jets fly from 160 to 180 miles per hour. So, you know, there's there may be some people who say it could have been jets, but again, like, why was it this insanely brilliant ball of light? And also a lot of these reports said that the objects moved silently. And as we know, jets are not silent. They are very, very noisy. So on August 30th, the same year, a student at Texas Tech named Carl Hart Jr. claimed to have seen a group of 18 to 20 white lights flying over his head. They made a V shape and Hart would later retrieve his camera and walk to his parents' home nearby. He went into their backyard, hoping that the lights would return. And two more lights did return, and Hart was able to capture five photographs before they disappeared. He had the photos developed, and he also sent these to the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, the same newspaper that the other men reported their sightings to. The newspaper's editor, Jay Harris, told Hart that he would run him out of town if the photos were later found out to be fake. The photos would later blow up quite a bit, and they were actually published around the nation and in Life magazine. And because of all the publicity that these Lubbock Lights photos got, there were even professionals in physics labs that started analyzing these photos, basically trying to debunk them. And more specifically, they were being heavily analyzed in labs at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The head of Project Blue Book, Ruppelt, initially thought the professors had maybe seen a bird called a plover. New streetlights in the area had also recently been installed, and so he thought it might be possible that the plovers were migrating and they were reflecting these new streetlights. But... A game warden and the head of Texas Tech's biology department, J.C. Cross, claimed there was absolutely no way that this could have been birds, including a plover. Meade, one of the other professors who had seen the lights, also rejected this theory and basically said the objects were way too large to be birds and way too fast. During the investigation, Ruppelt also heard about several other people that were in and around Lubbock, Texas, that had reported seeing what they described as a huge flying wing moving silently above the city, which sounds absolutely terrifying to me. I feel like it's worse when it just moves silently, like it's more menacing. Ruppelt knew that the U.S. Air Force did possess a jet bomber and felt at least some of the sightings could have been due to the bomber. But regarding all the strange lights, Ruppelt would later say that after an extensive investigation and analysis, the photos were never able to be proven to be a hoax. But they were also not able to be proven to be genuine. So just things to keep in mind. So now the other huge sighting, the DC sighting in 1952. Let's go to 11.40 p.m. on July the 19th, 1952. On the night in question, an air traffic controller named Edward Nugent was working and he saw seven strange objects appear on his radar. 
the objects immediately caught Nugent as strange because, first of all, no aircraft had been reported in this area, and second of all, the objects were not following any established flight path. So Nugent becomes concerned and contacts his superior, a senior air traffic controller named Harry Barnes. And Barnes looked at the objects as well, and he would later say that at the time, he immediately knew the situation was very abnormal. He described the object's movements as, quote, completely radical compared to those of an ordinary aircraft, end quote. Barnes also had two other workers check the radar to ensure that it was working properly, and they both found that it was. He even called the control tower and spoke to the controllers there, two men named Howard Coughlin and Joe Zacco. And they also saw the strange objects on the radar. So we have multiple people, and they were also reported seeing a hovering bright light in the sky, which then took off really quickly. Then it got even stranger. Other objects began to appear all over the radar scope. Then they moved over to the White House and the United States Capitol. So I'm sure at this point they were worried for people's safety. They thought maybe it could have been terroristic. So Barnes then called the Andrews Air Force Base which was just 10 miles from the National Airport where all these radar scope sightings were happening. An airman named William Brady, also at the time, reported seeing an object that looked like a ball of fire with a tail. So again, another classic UFO description. And this also does resemble the um, description of a meteor, but we'll get more into that later. He said it was unlike anything he had ever seen, And when Brady tried to alert another personnel, the object took off at lightning speed. S.C. Pierman, a Capital Airlines pilot, also saw what he thought at first was a meteor. And he told the control tower he had observed six white fast-moving lights. So with all of these reports and the data they've received so far, the workers at the Andrews Air Force Base got to work. So they're tracking these objects as well. And some thought they were unknown objects, while others thought they were stars and meteors. Hey, Paranormies, I'm Brittany. And I'm Alexa. And we're the hosts of They Don't Stay Dead. We're a paranormal podcast from Australia, and we've made it our mission to share with you all the real-life ghost stories and haunted locations from our home, as well as encounters with supernatural beings and reports of unknown mysteries. From haunted asylums and ghost ships to big cat cryptids and alien encounters, there's something for everyone. We release new episodes every Thursday, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out our Instagram at They Don't Stay Dead for weekly updates. We get a little bit spooky and a lot silly. So join us for some laughs and a tale of the unknown. Stay spooky, paranormies. But Staff Sergeant Charles Davenport soon saw an orange-red light standing still for a bit. Then it made an abrupt change in direction and significant changes in altitude several times. Doesn't sound like a meteor to me. 
The object also seemed to have been spotted by both of the radar centers at the National Airport and the Andrews Air Force Base. But just as quickly as this orange-red light appeared, it disappeared and disappeared on all of the radars simultaneously. So all of these objects are flying over the White House, the U.S. Capitol, and so fighter jets, of course, show up. They start flying around, but they couldn't find anything. So eventually, after flying around for so long and not being able to find anything, they're running low on fuel, so they had to leave. And as soon as the fighter jets left, the objects returned which made Barnes think that these were intelligent things, monitoring the radio traffic and behaving accordingly. And these sightings as well blew up in the media, and Captain Edward J. Rubelt was in Washington at the time when all of this took place, the head of Project Blue Book. So he found out about the sightings July 21st and spoke with intelligence officers at the Pentagon soon after. He then wanted to travel around Washington in a staff car to investigate the sightings, but apparently he was told he would have to rent a taxi cab with his own money and that he couldn't use a staff car. Apparently only the generals and senior colonels could use these staff cars. And Rupelt, I guess, is bougie because he took this very offensively and was frustrated by the news and then he refused to investigate and just left Washington. Sorry, just seems a little weird to me. Like, if you're that curious, and this is a potential threat to national security, and you're the lead on a government project, why would you leave? Because you have to be in a taxi cab. I don't understand. But whatever, Bougie Rupert leaves. Or <laughs> Have I been calling him Rupert? It's Rupelt. Bougie Rupelt left Washington, and he ends up back at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And he would later speak to an Air Force radar specialist named Captain Roy James. James felt that the unusual weather conditions that had been going on were likely the cause of all of these sightings. So a lot of different theories are floating around. But just a few days later, on July 26th, 1952... It's 8.15 p.m., and a pilot and stewardess on a flight into Washington suddenly began to observe strange lights hovering above their plane. The radar centers at National Airport and at the Air Force Base soon were once again tracking unidentified flying objects. By the time it was 9.30 p.m., so just a little over an hour later, These unknown objects were being detected in every sector of the radar. So more and more are popping up. No one can figure out what the heck they are. Must have been pretty creepy. The objects reached a calculated speed of up to 7,000 miles per hour. So way freaking faster than a jet. And once again, fighter jets showed up in response. But like, I don't know what the heck they think they're going to (laughs) do if they're moving at 7,000 miles an hour. But they come, and the flight leader, Captain John McHugo, saw nothing. But his wingman, Lieutenant William Patterson, saw four white glowing orbs, and he actually tried to chase them and was, of course, at maximum speed, but he still had no chance of catching up with them. 
So these sightings are continuing. Professionals can't figure them out. The public is getting paranoid and scared. And the media is, of course, eating this up. And eventually, the president at the time, Harry Truman, gets word of all of this. He became concerned with the amount of sightings, and ultimately, the CIA gets involved. And they reacted by forming the Office of Scientific Intelligence and the Office of Current Intelligence to review everything. This also resulted in the creation of what became known as the Robertson Panel, and this was in 1953. In the press, military and government officials also started taking interviews, and they are majorly downplaying this. They're chalking up the sightings to weather conditions, and that the unknown radar targets could be explained by temperature inversions, which was present in the air over Washington on both nights, and the strange radar events were seen and reported at this time, but still, they're basically drawing conclusions when they don't know what's actually causing this, but they're telling the public this is what it was because they don't want people to panic, of course. Military and government officials also declared the objects were not caused by any type of solid material objects. So basically, because they're declaring this, they also said there was no national security threat because it's nothing tangible. It's not an object, like a, a missile, for example. During the Robertson panel's investigation, they spent 12 hours reviewing six years of data that had been collected by Project Blue Book. So they don't exactly look at it for very long. They concluded after these 12 hours that most of the UFO reports could all be explained with further investigation, <laughs> but that the investigation was not worth the effort. Sorry, what? Like, <laughs> how are you just gonna say, these could be explained, but we're not gonna explain them, and then that be the answer? <laughs> so of course this doesn't satisfy the public, and people are getting more paranoid and basically distrusting the government. These investigators also stated that UFOs were overloading intelligence channels and that this could pose risk of missing an actual threat to U.S. safety. So they're using scare tactics as well. These investigators then recommended that the Air Force de-emphasize UFOs and begin to debunk them as much as possible to lessen public interest. So they literally suggested that this be done through mass media, interviews with psychologists, celebrities, astronomers, and even Walt Disney. So everything I'm about to say here is alleged, but there are a lot of people who believe this and support this opinion. A lot of people think that the Robertson panel helped control public opinion in a very unethical manner. They were being very dishonest, they did this through spying and propaganda, which we know that the CIA did during this time period with other government projects like MKUltra and the wiretapping scandals with presidents, Watergate. Like, these are things that have happened and have been exposed. So, just my opinion, but who's to say they couldn't have been doing this with the UFOs as well? 
In December of 1953, it became a crime for military personnel to discuss classified UFO reports with unauthorized persons. People who were caught in violation of this could face fines of up to $10,000 or spend up to two years in prison. So the people who have seen this firsthand, military personnel, their livelihood is now being put at risk. And of course, they have children, spouses, so they're getting tight-lipped because they're scared. In February of 1953, airbase officers were ordered to only report UFO incidents to the public if they had been solved and to classify all unsolved cases. But how are you going to solve something that quickly? So basically, those 701 unexplained cases became classified up until the Freedom of Information Act, which would bring all this out later. Military personnel were also ordered to reduce the number of unidentified cases to the absolute minimum. So by the end of 1956, this number of unsolved cases went from 20 to 30 percent to just 0.4 percent. So they're conveniently, using air quotes here, solving all of these unexplained cases, and they managed to get them to 0.4%. Sketch. With all of this change, Rootbelt ultimately requested to be reassigned and left in August of 1953. So this is not what Rootbelt was all about here. There were also major staffing cuts during this time, and after this, Rootbelt seemed to be replaced by either people who didn't care, or they were completely hostile leaders when it came to the topic of UFOs. They were also now facing a major lack of funding and support from public officials. In his book that he later wrote, Rupelt wrote that the radar and control tower personnel, as well as some officers at the Air Force Base, strongly disagreed with the Air Force's public explanation of these sightings. In 1966, there were also massive widespread reports of UFO sightings in both Massachusetts and New Hampshire, to the point where the House Committee on Armed Services had to have a congressional hearing. According to attachments gathered from the hearing, at first the Air Force stated the sightings were due to there being a training exercise happening in the area, but the NICAP, or the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, would later report there was no record of any planes flying during the time of these sightings. And if it's just a training exercise with normal planes, they would have logged that. So it's like, either there's some UFO things going on, or... The government is doing something with technology that they don't want us to know about, which I feel like both are equally possible. A man named Raymond Fowler from the NICAP also interviewed locals who claimed to have seen the Air Force officers confiscating any newspapers that they saw mentioning these stories. And they also told locals to keep quiet about what they had seen. People working on Project Blue Book chalked all of these sightings up to mass hysteria, hoaxes and lies, crazy people, quote-unquote, and simple misidentifications. 
how convenient. There were also two other people by the names of Eugene Bertrand and David Hunt that would later write a letter to Major Quintanilla after they witnessed these UFOs for themselves. They said, quote, it was impossible to mistake what we saw for any kind of military operation regardless of altitude, end quote. There's also sightings going on in other countries during this time period as well. So the U.S. is having a harder and harder time explaining what the hell is going on. And again, with all of these sightings and what's becoming a pretty obvious government cover-up, people are getting pissed off. They want answers. So they're getting more and more vocal about it in the media, and criticism of Project Blue Book grew and grew throughout the mid-60s. And meanwhile, the NICAP's membership was exploding. During this time, they had about 15,000 members. Eventually, the NICAP charged the U.S. government with a cover-up of UFO evidence. Hot damn. The drama. Eventually, the secret of Air Force, Robert C. Siemens Jr.? C. C. Siemens. What an unfortunate name. (laughs) Robert C. (laughs) Robert C. Siemens Jr. announced that Project Blue Book would be closing because of funding and because it couldn't be justified on the grounds of national security or in the interest of science. All of the files gathered during this project were then archived at the Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. So decades went by in the U.S., and at least publicly, it seemed like the government stopped investigating UFOs. But, 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 in December 2017, it was disclosed that a new secret UFO study was funded at $22 million for five years. And this went on from 2007 to 2012. And it was known as Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, also known as the AATIP. An Air Force memorandum that was eventually released by the Freedom of Information Act stated that even after Project Blue Book dissolved, air quotes again, reports of UFOs continued to be handled through the Air Force. This report was dated from October of 1969. Additionally, Author Howard Blum reported these discovered documents showed the Air Force continued to document UFO sightings after Project Blue Book dissolved, including a series of dozens of encounters from the late 1960s through the mid-1970s. In 2023, this year, an Air Force veteran and former member of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency named David Grush came forward with information claiming an extraterrestrial craft was recovered and kept secret by the U.S. government. During his time as a decorated government employee, Grush was trusted with some of the U.S. government's most intimate secrets. Grush would say to the media, quote, These are retrieving non-human origin technical vehicles. 
call it spacecraft if you will, non-human exotic origin vehicles that have either landed or crashed. I thought it was totally nuts, and I thought at first I was being deceived. It was a ruse. People started to confide in me, approach me. I have plenty of senior, former intelligence officers that came to me, many of which I knew almost my whole career, that confided in me that they were part of a program. There was a sophisticated disinformation campaign targeting the U.S. populace, which is extremely unethical and immoral. We're definitely not alone. The data points quite empirically that we're not alone. End quote. I mean, come on. And this program, Grush had also, like, never heard of. So these other government, military people that Grush had worked with his entire career start confiding in him because he's a trusted, well-known official, he knows his stuff, and they're telling him about this sketchy program, and he had never even heard of the program, and he's one of the most trusted people. So he finds all of this out and keeps it secret for years and years, I'm sure of fear, So in this interview with the media, Grush then claimed they not only told him about this program that he had never heard of, and that all of their stories perfectly lined up, but they even provided him with documents and other proof. Grush even filed a whistleblower complaint to Congress and the intelligence community inspector general. He did also say, though, to the media that he could not present this evidence for national security reasons. He also said he had not seen photos of this alleged crash that led to them obtaining this spaceship. Now, with all that being said, though, the journalist that Grush spoke with, Leslie Keene, would later say she had multiple sources to back up Grush's story and that to her, the lack of physical evidence did not alarm her. She said, quote, The problem with that is all of that information is classified. As we said in the story, everything that Grush told Congress and told the Department of Defense Inspector General, all of that information is classified. End quote. And think about it. Why would Grush put his ass on the line like this? Just really makes you think about what else could be out there and how much we don't know. And that is the perplexing story of Project Blue Book. And I hope you learned something new today, found this episode interesting. Hopefully it didn't break your brain. If it did, just take a bit to recover. And if you want to learn more, there is actually a documentary series on Netflix now called Top Secret UFO Projects Declassified. And I watched the first two episodes, but I think there's like six. Um, It seems pretty well done. And each episode's about 45 minutes long. I think for skeptics too, like myself, this is really interesting. And it's a cool topic to look into. So I just encourage you to keep your mind open And, you know, look up at the sky more often. Remember to check out my new merch. And if you've been enjoying the show, please, as always, remember those ways to support me. Leave a five-star review, like the video, subscribe to the YouTube channel. 
You can always request topics or send crazy stories of your own to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can DM me your stories on Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at perplexitymysterypodcast. And please check out the show notes for other ways to support and contact me and for the sources that I used. Also, don't forget to take those polls to let me know your thoughts on the things that I've been releasing so far. Those are in each podcast episode. And I know sometimes people think, well, I like the episodes. I don't have any complaints. So why would I take a poll? But I don't know how you guys are feeling if you don't take the polls. And it seriously just takes two seconds. So thank you in advance for that. And I think that that's everything. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening. You all are amazing. Hope you have an awesome week. And I will talk to you next week. Bye.